Chapter Three of The Quirt by B. M. Bower. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three: Reality is weighed and found wanting. Still dreaming her dreams, still featuring herself as the star of many adventures, Lorraine followed the brakeman out of the dusty day coach and down the car steps to the platform of the place called Echo, Idaho. I can only guess at what she expected to find there in the person of a cattle king father, but whatever it was, she did not find it. No father, of any type whatever, came forward to claim her. In spite of her western experience, she looked about her for a taxi, or at least a street car. Even in the wilds of western melodrama, one could hear the clang of street car gongs warning careless autoists off the track. After the train had hooted and gone on around an absolutely uninteresting low hill of yellow barrenness dotted with stunted sage, it was the silence that first impressed Lorraine disagreeably. Echo Idaho was a very poor imitation of all the western sets she had ever seen. True, it had the straggling row of square-fronted one-story buildings with hitch rails, but the signs painted across the fronts were absolutely common. Any director she had ever obeyed would have sent for his assistant director and would have used language which a lady must not listen to. Behind the store and the post office and the blacksmith shop, on the brow of the low hill around whose point the train had disappeared, were houses with bay windows and porches absolutely out of keeping with the west. So far as Lorraine could see, there was not a log cabin in the whole place. The hitch rails were empty, and there was not a cowboy in sight. Before the post office, a terrible, grimy touring car stood with its running boards loaded with canvas-covered suitcases. Three goggled, sunburned women in ugly khaki suits were disconsolately drinking soda water from bottles without straws, and a goggled, red-faced, angry-looking man was jerking impatiently at the hood of the machine. Lorraine and her suitcase apparently excited no interest whatever in Echo, Idaho. The station agent was carrying two boxes of oranges and a crate of California cabbages in out of the sun, and a limp individual in blue gingham shirt and dirty overalls had shouldered the mail sack and was making his way across the dusty, rut-scored street to the post office. Two questions and two brief answers convinced her that the station agent did not know Britain Hunter, which was strange, unless this happened to be a very new agent. Lorraine left him to his cabbages and followed the man with the mail sack. At the post office, the anemic clerk came forward, eyeing her with admiring curiosity. Lorraine had seen anemic young men all her life, and the last three years had made her perfectly familiar with that look in a young man's eyes. She met it with impatient disfavor, founded chiefly upon the young man's need of a decent haircut, a less flowery tie, and a tailored suit. When he confessed that he did not know Mr. Britton Hunter by sight, he ceased to exist so far as Lorraine was concerned. She decided that he also was new to the place, and therefore perfectly useless to her. The postmaster himself, Lorraine was cheered by his spectacles, his shirt sleeves, and his chin whiskers, which made him look the part, 
was better informed. He, too, eyed her curiously when she said, My father, Mr. Britton Hunter, but he made no comment on the relationship. He gave her a telegram and a letter from the general delivery. The telegram, she suspected, was the one she had sent to her dad announcing the date of her arrival. The postmaster advised her to get a livery rig and drive out to the ranch, since it might be a week or two before anyone came in from the court. Lorraine thanked him graciously and departed for the livery stable. The man in charge there chewed tobacco meditatively and told her that his teams were all out. If she was a mind to wait over a day or two, he said, he might maybe be able to make the trip. Lorraine took a long look at the structure which he indicated as the hotel. I think I'll walk, she said calmly. Walk? The stableman stopped chewing and stared at her. It's some considerable of a walk. It's all a eighteen mile. I don't know, maybe twenty, time you get to the house. I have frequently walked twenty-five or thirty miles. I am a member of the Sierra Club in Los Angeles. We seldom take hikes of less than twenty miles. If you will kindly tell me which road I must take... There she is, the man stated flatly, and pointed across the railroad track to where a sandy road drew a yellowish line through the sage, evidently making for the hills showing hazily violet in the distance. Those hills formed the only break in the monotonous gray landscape, and Lorraine was glad that her journey would take her close to them. Thank you so much she said coldly and returned to the station in the small lavatory of the depot waiting-room she exchanged her slippers for a pair of moderately low-heeled shoes which she had at the last minute of packing tucked into her suitcase put a few extra articles into her rather smart travel bag left the suitcase in the telegraph office and started not another question would she ask of echo idaho which was flatter and more insipid than the drinking water in the tin cooler in the waiting room. The station agent stood with his hands on his hips and watched her cross the track and start down the road, pardonably astonished to see a young woman walk down a road that led only to the hills twenty miles away, carrying her luggage exactly as if her trip was a matter of a block or two at most. The bag was rather heavy and as she went on it became heavier. She meant to carry it slung across her shoulder on a stick as soon as she was well away from the prying eyes of Echo's inhabitants. Later, if she felt tired, she could easily hide it behind a bush along the road and send one of her father's cowboys after it. The road was very dusty and carried the wind-blown traces of automobile tires. Someone would surely overtake her and give her a ride before she walked very far. For the first half hour, she believed that she was walking on level ground, but when she looked back, there was no sign of any town behind her. Echo had disappeared as completely as if it had been swallowed. Even the unseemly bay-windowed houses on the hill had gone under. She walked for another half hour and saw only the gray sage stretching all around her, the hills looked farther away than when she started. Still, that beaten road must lead somewhere. 
two hours later she began to wonder why this particular road should be so unending and so empty never in her life before had she walked for two hours without seeming to get anywhere or without seeing any living human both shoulders were sore from the weight of the bag on the stick but the sage bushes looked so exactly alike that she feared she could not describe the particular spot where the cowboys would find her bag wherefore she carried it still she was beginning to change hands very often when the wind came just where or how that wind sprang up she did not know suddenly it was whooping across the sage and flinging up clouds of dust from the road to lorraine softened by years of southern california weather it seemed to blow straight off an ice field it was so cold after an interminable time which measured three hours on her watch she came to an abrupt descent into a creek bed down the middle of which the creek itself was flowing swiftly here the road forked a rough little used trail keeping on up the creek the better traveled road crossing and climbing the farther bank lorraine scarcely hesitated before she chose the main trail which crossed the creek from the creek the trail she followed kept climbing until lorraine wondered if there would ever be a top the wind whipped her narrow skirts and impeded her tugged at her hat tingled her nose and watered her eyes but she kept on doggedly disgustedly the west which she had seen through the glamour of swift-blooded romance sinking lower and lower in her estimation nothing but jackrabbits and the little twittery birds moved through the sage though she watched hungrily for horsemen quite suddenly the gray landscape glowed with a palpitating radiance unreal beautiful beyond expression she stopped turned to face the west and stared awestruck at one of those flaming sunsets which makes the desert land seem but a gateway into the ineffable glory beyond the earth that the high-piled gorgeous cloud bank presaged a thunderstorm she never guessed and that a thunderstorm may be a deadly terrifying peril she never had quite believed her mother had told of people being struck by lightning but lorraine could not associate lightning with death especially in the west where men usually died by shooting lynching or by pitching over a cliff the wind hushed as suddenly as it had whooped warned by the twinkling lights far behind her lights which must be the small part at last visible of echo idaho lorraine went on she had been walking steadily for four hours and she must surely have come near twenty miles if she ever reached the top of the hill she believed that she would see her father's ranch just beyond the afterglow had deepened to dusk when she came at last to the highest point of that long grade far ahead loomed a cluster of square black objects which must be the ranch buildings of the court and lorraine's spirits lightened a little what a surprise her father and all his cowboys would have when she walked in upon them it was almost worth the walk she told herself hearteningly she hoped that dad had a good cook he would wear a flour sack apron naturally and would be tall and lean or else very fat he would be a comedy character 
but she hoped he would not be the grouchy kind which, though very funny when he rampages around on the screen, might be rather uncomfortable to meet when one is tired and hungry and out of sorts. But, of course, the crankiest of comedy cooks would be decently civil to her. Men always were, except directors who are paid for their incivility. A hollow into which she walked in complete darkness and in silence, save the gurgling of another stream, hid from sight the shadowy semblance of houses and barns and sheds. Their disappearance slumped her spirits again for without them she was no more than a solitary speck in the vast loneliness. Their actual nearness could not comfort her. She was seized with a reasonless, panicky fear that by the time she crossed the stream and climbed the hill beyond, they would no longer be there where she had seen them. She was lifting her skirts to wade the creek when the click of hoofs striking against rocks sent her scurrying to cover in a senseless fear. I learned this act from the jackrabbits, she rallied herself shakily, when she was safely hidden behind a sage bush, whose pungency made her horribly afraid that she might sneeze, which would be too ridiculous. Some of Dad's cowboys, probably, but still, they may be bandits. If they were bandits, they could scarcely be out banditing, for the two horsemen were talking in ordinary conversational tones, as they rode leisurely down to the ford. When they passed Lorraine, the horse nearest her shied against the other and was sworn at parenthetically for a fool. Against the skyline, Lorraine saw the rider's form, bulk, squatty, and ungraceful, reminding her of an actor who she knew and did not like. It was that resemblance, perhaps, which held her quiet instead of following her first impulse to speak to them and ask them to carry her grip to the house. The horses stopped with their forefeet in the water and drooped heads to drink thirstily. The riders continued their conversation. And as I says time and again, they ain't big enough to fight the outfit, and the quicker they get out, the less lead they'll carry under their hides when they do go. What they want to try and hang on for beats me. Why, it's like setting into a poker game with a five-cent piece. They ain't got my sympathy. I ain't got any use for a damn fool. No way you look at it. Well, there's the TJ. They've been here a long while, and they ain't packing any lead, and they ain't getting out. Well, say, let me tell you something. But T.J. will get theirs and get it right. Drink all night, would you? He swore long and fluently at his horse, spurred him through the shallows, and the two rode on up the hill, their voices still mingled in desultory argument, with now and then an oath rising clearly above the jumble of words. They may have been law-abiding citizens, riding home to families that were waiting supper for them, but Lorraine crept out from behind her sage bush, sneezing and thanking her imitation of the jackrabbits. Whoever they were, she was not sorry she had let them ride on. They might be her father's men, and they might have been very polite and chivalrous to her, but their voices and their manner of speaking had been rough. And it is one thing, Lorraine reflected, to mingle with made-up villains, even to be waylaid and kidnapped and tied to trees and threatened with death, but it is quite different to accost rough-speaking men in the dark 
when you know that they are not being rough to suit the director of the scene. She was so absorbed in trying to construct a range war or something equally thrilling from the scrap of conversation she had heard that she reached the hilltop in what seemed a very few minutes of climbing. The sky was becoming overcast. Already the stars to the west were blotted out, and the absolute stillness of the atmosphere frightened her more than the big dark wilderness itself. It seemed to her exactly as though the earth was holding its breath and waiting for something terrible to happen. The vague bulk of buildings was still some distance ahead, and when a rumble like the deepest notes of a pipe organ began to fill the air, Lorraine thrust her grip under a bush and began to run, her soggy shoes squashing unpleasantly on the rough places in the road. Lorraine had seen many stage storms and had thrilled ecstatically to the mimic lightning, knowing just how it was made. But when that huge blackness behind and to the left of her began to open and show a terrible brilliance within, and to close abruptly, leaving the world ink-black, she was terrified. She wanted to hide as she had hidden from those two men. But from that stupendous monster, a real thunderstorm sagebrush formed no protection whatever she must reach the substantial shelter of buildings the comforting presence of men and women she ran and as she ran she wept aloud like a child and called for her father the deep rumble grew louder nearer the revealed brilliance became swift sword thrusts of blinding light that seemed to stab deep the earth lorraine ran awkwardly her hands over her ears, crying out at each lightning flash, her voice drowned in the thunder that followed it close. Then, as she neared the somber group of buildings, the clouds above them split with a terrific rending crash, and the whole place stood pitilessly revealed to her, as if a spotlight had been turned on. Lorraine stood aghast. The buildings were not buildings at all. They were rocks great black forbidding boulders standing there on a narrow ridge having a diabolic likeness to houses the human mind is wonderfully resilient but readjustment comes slowly after a shock dumbly refusing to admit the significance of what she had seen lorraine went forward not until she had reached and had touched the first grotesque caricature of habitation did she wholly grasp the fact that she was lost and that shelter might be miles away. She stood and looked at the orderly group of boulders as the lightning intermittently revealed them. She saw where the road ran on, between two square-faced rocks. She would have to follow the road, for, after all, it must lead somewhere to her father's ranch, probably. She wondered irrelevantly why her mother had never mentioned those queer rocks, and she wondered vaguely if any of them had caves or ledges where she could be safe from the lightning. She was on the point of stepping out into the road again when a horseman rode into sight between the two rocks. In the same instant of his appearance, she heard the unmistakable crack of a gun saw the rider jerk backward in the saddle, throw up one hand, and then the darkness dropped between them. Lorraine crouched behind a juniper bush, close against the rock, and waited. 
The next flash came within a half minute. It showed a man at the horse's head, holding it by the bridle. The horse was rearing. Lorraine tried to scream that the man on the ground would be trampled, but something went wrong with her voice so that she could only whisper. When the light came again, the man who had been shot was not altogether on the ground, and the other, working swiftly, had thrust the injured man's foot through the stirrup. Lorraine saw him stand back and lift his quirt to slash the horse across the rump. Even through the crash of thunder, Lorraine heard the horse go past her down the hill, galloping furiously. When she could see again, she glimpsed him running while something bounced along the ground beside him. She saw the other man, with a dry branch in his hand, dragging it across the road where it ran between the two rocks. Then Lorraine Hunter, hardened to the side of crimes committed for picture values only, realized sickeningly that she had just looked upon a real murder, the cold-blooded killing of a man. She felt very sick. Queer little red sparks squirmed and danced before her eyes. She crumpled down quietly behind the juniper bush and did not know when the rain came, though it drenched her in the first two or three minutes of downpour. End of chapter 3 Recording by Tom Penn